Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Go to a place that sells books and buy You Are Not So Smart's new book, You Are Now Less Dumb. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode six. Here at slowmovement.com, I'm looking, uh, I just clicked on downshifting, and it says, downshifting is a way of life. The trouble with the rat race is, even if you win, you're still a rat. Lily Tomlin, and they see, it goes on, who hasn't wanted to step off the ever-accelerating treadmill of work and gain some balance in life? Most of us, at one time or another, have wanted to move from the fast track of life to a more satisfying, healthier, less focused lifestyle. And what is a downshifter? Downshifters are people who adopt long-term voluntary simplicity in their life. They accept less money through fewer hours worked in order to have time for their important things. Downshifters also place emphasis on consuming less in order to reduce their ecological footprint. I mean, this sounds great uh, because, I mean, I'm sure you are just like me. You think that Man, I just work too much. I've got too many irons in the fire. I've got this, and I've got this, I've got this, and by the time I'm done with that, I've got to do this, and every time I turn around, there's another thing. It's just like modern life is so hectic, and then I've got to remember all these passwords, and I've got all these apps. This oh, Wait, 15 apps need to update? Great, so I've got to find some Wi-Fi to up to. Ugh, just too much stuff. What else is on here? I've got... Slow travel, slow cities, slow food, slow schools, slow books, slow living, slow money. So what's a slow school? Let me click on that. Slow education is about supporting our children to develop values and ethics that will enable them to live a joyous life in the slow lane. And there's a picture here of the science lab with like sinks and the burners and everything. And it just says underneath it, loss of the individual. Hmm. The similarities of debate about fast food versus slow food and the debate about fast schools versus slow schools are self-evident upon reflection. Fast schools, like fast food, are not concerned with the process, preparation, and connection. They are concerned with standardized end products. Well, I mean, this all sounds so right. I mean, I do feel rushed and everywhere. And I, I was a product of one of those schools that has, you know, the rigid timed classes and everyone must be here at a certain moment and those lesson plans are standardized and blah 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 I mean, it was before no child left behind but i think that you know it was leading up to it i just this all this stuff rings true it really sort of confirms what 
you feel about modern life being so fast-paced and there not being time for anything. But the problem with all of that is that it's based on a premise that isn't supported by the evidence. And that's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney, and I will be your host. And on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we explore a different self-delusion topic. In this episode, we're talking about spending and how terrible you are at spending money in a way that will bring you happiness. Our guest is Elizabeth Dunn, a psychologist whose research is focused on the psychology of spending. And take the slow movement, for example. According to Dunn, yes, it is true that people today feel more rushed, more busy than ever, but it's an illusion. The truth is that people in the modern United States have, on average, four more hours of leisure time than did people in the 1960s. There is a term in this in psychology, it's called time famine, and another term called time affluence. And in general, people today feel like they are always living through a time famine, but the opposite is true. Studies show that people today estimate the amount of time they spend working far more inaccurately than people did in previous decades. We basically work the same hours as we did in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but we feel like we work more. So. Why is it that we all feel like there just aren't enough hours in the day to do anything and that we are all struggling to find time to do things that bring us joy? Well, according to Dunn, it's because we, we're more affluent on average. That is, we make more money than ever before and we've shifted our attitudes because of it. When you make more per hour and when more of us, when on average there are more people making more per hour, those hours seem to be worth more. And when something is valuable, you assume it must also be scarce. Dunn writes about a study that had students pretend to be consultants. One group charged 15 cents a minute and the other charged $1.50 a minute. And then they had to do all these tasks to pretend like they were consultants for a company. And the people who were charging more money for those tasks reported later that they felt like they were scrambling to complete the work and that they were far more stressed than did the other group. The other group didn't feel those feelings at all. So the research shows that in just about every country polled, the more money people make, the more rushed that they feel, even though they actually have more free time now than ever. We're still, the more you are reminded of how important your time is, like with reminder apps and fast food and to-do lists, the more you intensify your feelings of impatience, which adds to the illusion that you're living through a time famine. Once you see time as money, you start to see it as a scarce resource, and that makes you frugal. And that's why the slow movement sprang up. You know, it's encouraging people to work less so that they could watch more waterfalls and read more books, which you should do. But the problem is that you already have that time to do those things. You just don't know it. Studies show that people who have more free time spend it on things that make them sad. Shopping and working and watching television and commuting those things do not make you happy. Not like exercising and spending time with others and reading and having sex and donating effort to charity. Those things do make you happy. And when you buy things, you don't buy things that uh, will deliver joy in the future. You buy stuff like a television or a car or a house. Those things do not provide you with the happiness that you will get from experiences, even short experiences, even bad ones. So that's what we're going to talk about today with Elizabeth Dunn. She co-wrote Happy Money, The Science of Smarter Spending with Michael Norton. And 
Elizabeth Dunn is a professor of psychology at the Department of Psychology at the University of British Columbia. She was rightfully selected as a rising star in academia by the Chronicle of Higher Education. And she has a gazillion awards. She's got a gazillion publications. Her research is very interesting and noble. And I hope you enjoy our interview. I know I enjoyed interviewing her. Here it is. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just, there's too many, you can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, 
and one. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number, 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. Okay, Elizabeth, so you've poured over thousands of studies and personally added to the research into the psychology of spending. I just want to get this out of the way. What does the evidence say? Can money buy happiness? Well, it suggests that money can buy happiness if you spend it right. You write in the book that income has little influence on happiness. And that is something that if you just say, uh, if you just run across that without ever having read any research into that, it will seem preposterous. Um, what does the research have to say about wealth and its relationship to happiness? Well, first off, um, you know, people who say that, you know, money can't buy happiness, you know, money has no relationship with happiness. They're wrong. Money does matter for happiness. There is a relationship. Almost every survey that's ever been conducted anywhere finds that people with more money are happier. It's just that that relationship is really small. And in fact, we've asked people to predict how happy they would be given different levels, different uh, levels of income. And what we see is that people overestimate the impact of my unhappiness. So money does have some bearing on happiness. It's just that its uh, effect on happiness is surprisingly small. And in particular, it tends to taper off once people are making um, about $75,000 in the United States money ceases to have, additional money ceases to have any measurable impact on people's day-to-day -day positive feelings. Now, people do evaluate their lives more positively. So people who are asked, you know, how satisfied they are with their lives overall, if they're making $5 million, they do provide a somewhat higher number than people making, you know, a measly $100,000. But if you look at how much they're laughing, smiling, and enjoying the day, the million dollars, the $5 million doesn't make any difference over and above, say, $100,000. Why is that Why is that something that is so hard to believe? Why is that doesn't 
feel correct intuitively. Right. Well, I think part of it is that when we imagine having more money, we naturally imagine what our own life would be like if we suddenly woke up, say, as millionaires. Like if you tomorrow increased my salary to be a million dollars a year, I would be happier. You know, I'm not wrong about that. I would be happier. It's just that I'd get used to it. You know, I'd reshape my life to be the life of a millionaire. And then that would just become my life. And I'd still have the problem that like, you know, I got in a fight with my friend or my husband hasn't done the dishes. Really, it's usually me that hasn't done the dishes. But in any case, all the little problems of daily life, they're often still there. And those end up the sort of little small things that happen to us on a daily basis can end up shaping our happiness, you know, in more powerful ways than we expect. While these basic life conditions, like how much money we're making, tend to fade into the background of it. It reminds me, Daniel Gilbert writes about the uh, psychological immune system, how you sort of uh, a really terrible life event, you will eventually become acclimated to it and you will return to sort of a homeostasis of happiness. So I'm, and I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like it works in the other direction as well. Even if you, uh, if you were, as your wealth increases way past $75,000 a year, is that correct? It absolutely works in the other direction. And in fact, uh, you know, our capacity to get over negative events and return to our baseline levels of happiness is a wonderful thing. But it turns out that our capacity to get over positive events and return to our baseline level of happiness is actually even stronger. So we can find a few negative events that people don't completely adapt to. We're still looking for a positive event that people don't completely adapt to eventually. So um, one of the central ideas in your book is that we should shift away from buying things to buying experiences, even if those experiences turn out to be short or um, even if those experiences kind of turn out to be sort of bad. And that seems weird because things are so tangible and they last and they, they, they're around us and we can see the evidence of our purchase and experiences are ephemeral and they just sort of float away back into memory. Why is it that we should be buying experiences instead of things? Well, for one thing, experiences tend to bring us closer to other people, uh, whereas material things are often enjoyed alone. And it turns out that probably the single most important thing for happiness is our connections with other people. Um, so, you know, uh, if you think back on the last trip that you went on or the last, you know, special meal that you enjoyed, you probably were with somebody else you know, most likely someone else that you care about. Whereas, you know, if I buy myself a pair of new shoes or something, I'm going to notice those shoes. I may be surprised by how little other people notice those shoes. Um, and those shoes are not going to bring me closer to the loved ones around me. And could you speak a little bit about how it doesn't really matter how long the experience lasts, or even if it's like incredibly great, just but compared to a thing, it does seem to um, beat it out for overall happiness. Mm -hmm, yeah. So uh, particularly when we look back on an experience and looking back on an experience is actually a very valuable source of happiness. Our memories can provide us with sources of happiness even when we're sitting on a crowded subway. When we look back on an experience, the length of that experience has very little bearing on our sort of uh, feelings of happiness that we get from it or our satisfaction with it. What seems to matter uh, perhaps the most is the kind of peak level of happiness 
happiness. Um, so for example, I went to, uh, I was lucky enough while I was working on this book to go spend a month in Bali, which I recommend as a place to go write a book. (laughs) Um, but, uh, you know, we were really excited that we got to spend a whole month there, but I think, you know, the length of that trip, uh, meant that a lot of the days kind of blurred together. Um, but when I look back on the trip, what really matters to me are those sort of like peak experiences, some of the very best things, uh, that I did, the length of the trip, you know, doesn't really, um, uh, make a big difference to me when I look back and think about the, uh, sort of, uh, happiness that it gave me. So I want to read you a uh, review in, on Amazon that, uh, completely misses the point of your entire book. Um, and I'm not sure that I'm not sure this person read your book, uh, but they definitely wanted to comment on it. This is your, uh, this is your only one star review. Uh, and, uh, I would like to hear your rebuttal. Uh, okay. This is fantastic. And I, I kind of imagine this is, uh, the guy from American psycho when I'm reading this, I live in a comfortable 4,000 square feet house and drive a Porsche. I do enjoy every moment in my house and in my car. I am happier with material things and buying experiences. And for me, living in a comfortable home is much better than traveling and more fun. I disagree with the author's premise that experiences make you happier than material things. Elizabeth Dunn, your rebuttal. Okay. Well, first off, um, you know, I, I would just be a little humble here and say that our, you know, we probably deserve the occasional one-star review because our advice is not going to work for everybody. Certainly people vary in terms of, you know, what pleases them. And I don't think as scientists, we should get too overconfident in our own research. Now that said, if you look across uh, most people, on average, uh, they do tend to get more happiness from buying experiences than from buying material things. The problem with being any one person is that you don't necessarily get to do an experiment on yourself. So what I would like to do if I could take my one-star reviewer and turn him into my own experiment would be to sell his Porsche, perhaps sell his home, move him into a more basic uh, house and with a more basic car, see how his happiness does. My guess is that it actually might go down a little bit initially, but perhaps wouldn't plummet. Um, And then I'd like to take that money from those sales and see what I could do with it uh, to perhaps make him happier than he was before. And in particular, I would uh, think about perhaps buying him some experiences, maybe putting him on a plane for a bit, um, maybe somewhere without internet access, uh, and giving him a chance to uh, try out this principle. Because I think um, it's very hard, actually, for us to figure out what would maximize our happiness because we don't necessarily get to explore, you know, every road not traveled to go back in time and, you know, divide ourselves and see how happy we would have been had we used our money in some fundamentally different way. Now, we as scientists have this rare privilege that we do get to do experiments and we can study a whole bunch of people and try to sort of extract these regularities that are very hard for people to see when they just examine their own individual experience. That was excellent. Um, and I will say I will say that almost all of your reviews are five-star reviews. That was, uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't mean to spring that on you in any weird way. Oh, no, it's fun. I love it. That's great. <laughs> um, that uh, segues great into you have a section of the book about buying treats, um, and you spend a lot of time uh, uh, talking about Sarah Silverman's mantra, and I, I love this section of the book, and it speaks directly to what this uh, commenter was saying on Amazon. He said, because you say that buying houses and nice cars and expensive televisions uh, really don't bring the happiness we expect them to. Um, could you explain why we tend to buy the things that we, those sort of things, even though those are the things that 
do not provide the happiness we expect? Yeah. So, I mean, one challenge here is that um, when we're faced with a purchase, you know, say um, buying something like a fancy new TV, um, it's really easy to get sucked into all of the concrete features that a product offers. I find this happening to myself. I was recently shopping for a new laptop and I went in like, I'm going to buy one of those $300 laptops and I'm not spending more than $300 because I just want to use this computer for like Netflix and iTunes. So that's all I'm going to do. And this 16 year old salesman, like, almost talked me into buying a computer that was twice as much. And it's because he showed me, wow, gosh, for just a little more money, I can get this many more gigs and this much more RAM. And that appeals to our desire to kind of compare products, to see the quantitative differences between features that really do stand out when we compare products side by side. Um, But that can kind of lead us to end up spending all our money on stuff that might not make a big difference for our happiness. And you know when you compare in the store, you're comparing things back and forth. But when you ever when it get, goes in your home, it just becomes the thing. You know, if you're comparing between two beds, and you can go back and forth uh, between this one is this good, this one has these features, this one costs this much. But once it's in your house, you don't think about all the other beds in the world anymore. Exactly. I mean, for me, the the um, most perhaps painful example is uh, hardwood floors. When we moved into our condo, it was like uh, the the flooring was basically this uh, incredibly ugly pink carpet uh, with like, I think, stains and like smoke and embedded in it. So we, we had to tear it out. That was kind of a given. But then when it came time to replace it with hardwood floors, my husband and I became obsessed with comparing hardwood floors. Like I can't tell you the number of hours we spent in hardwood floor showrooms, which is just not where you should be spending your Saturday. But (laughs) we were, and I to this day can walk into a house and instantly recognize the like, is this, you know, um, maple or walnut or bamboo or whatever. And it just, and and then you become more obsessed. Like you notice the different stains on the maple and so forth. But for me, and so we spent a ridiculous amount of time picking out our hardwood floor. We got sucked into like buying the hardest hardwood that we could get, blah, blah, blah. And now it's really just the ground beneath my feet. I walk across my house and do not notice what our floors look like. Mm -hmm. I can totally attest that. Anyone who's bought an an iPhone or uh, I just got a Pebble uh, smartwatch and uh, it's now just a watch. But uh, (laughs) we uh, we become uh, acclimated to things like smells. It's um, it's a weird, peculiar thing. Good most of the time, but not. um, We're very bad at predicting what's going to make us happy, and um, what. What is it about uh, money in particular? Why are we so bad at spending money? Well, there's a sort of bonus problem that comes along with money. So aside from just the general challenges associated with figuring out what makes us happy, money can actually push us in the wrong direction. So uh, research by Kathleen Boss and her colleagues has shown that when people are even just exposed to reminders of money, something as simple as a screensaver that has dollar bills on it, Just being reminded of money makes people want to look out for their own interests and makes them really want to avoid doing anything to help other people. So just thinking about money can kind of orient us toward our own needs and goals and make us really want to just stay separate from other people. And in fact, we should do the opposite if we want to be happy. To be happy, you really want to connect with others, even do things to help other people. But just thinking about money is already sort of pushing you off in the wrong direction. 
have we always been that way or is this a is this a recent thing how's how does the the um the focus on money as a as a object and as a way of thinking about the world how has that changed uh through eras and through cultures you know it's a great question unfortunately people haven't um, had necessarily the research tools or asked the research question for for more than about five years. So uh, this research is quite new. So it's it's hard to know, you know, if this idea was there, um, you know, if if the effects of being exposed to money would have been the same, say, you know, five hundred years ago. I mean, the associations that people had with money are bound to differ across time and in different cultures. I do know that. You know, if we look uh, currently, the effects that have been seen uh, in North America do replicate around the world, whereby, you know, I don't think people have been tested in every country, but certainly in, you know, multiple cultures that differ quite a bit, um, exposing people to their own local currency uh, seems to sort of make people feel like they're self-sufficient, they can get what they need on their own, and they don't really want to rely on or be relied uh, uh, be relied on by other people. Mm. Okay, so in the section on buying treats, you focus on the idea that boredom is a relationship killer and that um, novelty, along with absence, can actually make the heart grow fonder. Could you uh, expand on that a little bit? Sure, yeah. So um, novelty is something that really uh, excites our emotions, unleashes our uh, potential for happiness. Um, And, you know, one of the problems with long-term relationships is that the person who was once like our new exciting first date becomes our spouse. And then, you know, as wonderful as that person might be, they're no longer offering us that little thrill of novelty. Um, But luckily it turns out that you can kind of inject that novelty back into um, a relationship. Uh, And in fact, doing something as simple as uh, completing like a wacky obstacle course with your uh, partner can uh, give you this feeling that your relationship is novel and exciting again. So just sort of doing something novel and exciting with your partner can make you feel like that person is actually new and exciting. And how, and how does that translate into um, advice that you would give on how to spend our money, how to, uh, how to purchase things better? Yeah. So uh, one thing that I think about with uh, my husband is uh, that, you know, it's worthwhile to um, spend money on something that's like really new and exciting that we could do together. Um, So I'm going to hope that he doesn't listen to this podcast because if he does, it's going to ruin the (laughs) surprise. But I'm thinking for our five year anniversary of taking him on a hot air balloon ride. Now it's, expensive it seems kind of indulgent because it's this like thing that costs a lot of money and in two hours it's over and you're left with nothing um but i think you are left with something important and that's this feeling that your relationship is exciting um and doing these kinds of like unexpected novel exciting things together uh can make that lasting difference but those new exciting things often cost money and i would argue that it's probably actually money well spent and that that seems to be a, a theme throughout your book is that we Oftentimes we think things are going to be indulgent and that um, there's some sort of guilt that we'll associate with the thing that we're going to spend a lot of money on. But in retrospect, it always seems like money well spent if it's an experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people just seem um, a little less susceptible to experiencing guilt 
from uh, splurging on a an experience than they uh, think they would. So you know, often the pleasure of doing something really fun, like um, going for a spa day or going out out to dinner for no reason, can actually kind of overwhelm the guilt that we expected to experience. Now, before we run out of time, I really want to get into uh, another one of my favorite debunkings in the book, and that is that uh, you talk about how the slow movement is uh, probably, based on the evidence, mostly bunk, um, and that we feel busier, but we actually have more leisure time than in previous decades. I think you said that um, we have four more hours leisure than people in the 1960s. So why is it then that we feel like we have less uh, time to spend on things we enjoy? Well, one sort of surprising reason uh, seems to be that uh, our time is worth more money than it used to be. Now, this is true both looking across time. So, um, uh, you know, now our time is worth more money than it would have been in, say, the 1970s. It's also the case that for any one individual, as you get older, your time typically becomes worth more money than it was, you know, when you were younger. Um, and so this gives us the experience both, you know, growing older and across, also looking across generations that time has become more valuable. Now, when something is valuable, we tend to perceive that it's scarce. scarce. Scarcity and value are linked tightly in our minds. And so just you know, knowing that your time is valuable can actually make it seem scarce. And so that can leave us with the impression, because time is so valuable, it can leave us with the impression that um, we're pressed for time, that we have less time than we once did. I totally thought this was true. And I was like, oh, slow movement, that's really cool. And then I started looking at the research and realizing, wow, actually, you know, the, the basic assumption that that movement is based on that, like we're busier than we used to be really turns out to be false. And it just, it's so bizarre. Cause it feels, I feel that every day, like there's mm -hmm. a, but, um, when I, we, in the book, you actually recommend take a second and think about all the, t all the things that you get to do during your work week that people didn't get to do, um, in eras past. And you start to see that you do have more time. It's just the way you're, it's our relationship to the time has changed. Exactly. Right. And, you know, thinking about, I feel like I'm extremely busy, but I forget about all the little bits of free time that I actually take during the day. Like I just, you know, went up to get coffee and bumped into a friend and talked to them for a bit. And, you know, all these little pieces uh, uh, that we build into our day, we may sort of forget about when we're just thinking about how rushed we, we all are. And you, you straight up in the book bust this uh, notion that time is money. Why is that bad advice? Yeah. So the problem with seeing time as money is that, again, it reinforces this idea that our time is so valuable that we can't do anything like, say, give our time away and volunteer. Uh, the more people see their time as money, the less likely they are to want to do volunteer work. And in some very new research that we're finding, we, we also see that um, when people see time as money, they don't want to do things like even recycle because it's not worth their time. Um, so uh, this is a problem for happiness, uh, particularly because um, when we see time as money, first we feel uh, more pressed for time. We also feel like, you know, disinclined from, say, volunteering. And again, volunteering is actually one of the best activities we can do for our happiness. So giving our time away is a good source of happiness. And yet we don't want to do that when we feel that every minute of our time is a dollar. And 
you in, in all of the uh, in the book you have these principles: buy experiences, uh, try to make uh, your experiences treats. Don't don't allow yourself to satiate and and have an overabundance of experiences. Buy time when you can, appreciate time. And then there's this really really great uh, piece of advice that is counterintuitive and it goes against the way I know North American culture works, and that is pay now, consume later. Could you explain that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think pretty much everything in our culture pushes us to uh, consume as soon as possible and pay for it as late as possible. But happiness research suggests we'd be better off doing exactly the opposite. Um, So first off, whenever we pay, it's kind of painful, Uh, you know, forking over your hard-earned cash for something, especially something that's a little bit expensive, um, uh, can actually provide, can actually produce a feeling of pain that is surprisingly akin to real physical pain. That's going to happen no matter what, but it's better to suck it up and take the pain on the chin right up front because then you get it out of the way. And then if you later, if you wait to consume, For example, if you pay for a vacation now and then don't take it till September, you can then enjoy that vacation without that pain of payment hanging over you. In the meantime, uh, while you're waiting for that vacation to roll around, the uh, that waiting time can actually provide a sort of uh, free source of pleasure in the form of anticipation. And, and you actually say that pre-ordering things or paying for things way in advance, uh, whether it's like a DVD or it's uh, or like you said, just now a vacation that will increase the happiness we have later on. Exactly right. So that's a very sort of simple way, even with a small purchase, um, uh, ordering, say, you know, a book before it becomes available. For example, um, uh, one of my favorite authors had a new book coming out and it wasn't going to be available for a month. So I pre-ordered it, paid for it. And then it just showed up on my Kindle, like a free surprise. A month later, I completely forgotten that I bought it. And it was like, literally like there was this gift waiting for me of this book by my favorite author that had already been long, long ago paid for and just felt like this, you know, free treat. And so why is it then that we are so, uh, why are credit cards so powerful, so alluring? Why are, they, why are credit card companies so successful at getting us to use money in the way that they want us to use it? Because anything that allows us to delay pain is going to be attractive. So, you know, if I say to you, um, I want to, you know, um, extract a tooth of yours, I can do it right now, or we can do it in five years. You're probably going to choose the five years, right? If there's actually research showing that we see um, our future selves kind of like we see other people. We don't entirely believe that the me of, you know, a year from now is really the me of today. Um, so it's almost like I can enjoy this, you know, wonderful dinner and that other girl, you know, Liz of six months from now can deal with paying for it. Yeah. But the, but really the opposite is true. We can, uh, if we pay now, consume later, we will be happier. Um, and so, right. I mean, the thing is the key, the key is really getting payment and consumption. And, but most people do that by, uh, consuming first and paying for it later. We just argue people should do the opposite. And how how does debt affect our ha- overall happiness compared to things like earning money and saving money? Yeah, debt is like a dead weight for happiness. It's really probably um, the first advice that I would give anybody is if, if you've got debt, pay that off. You know, I'm not talking about say um, 
a mortgage or something like that, but the kind of debt that um, hangs over our heads like credit card debt, um, paying that off is probably the single best thing we could do for our happiness. Savings are also good for happiness on the flip side, but debt is a bigger drag on happiness than savings are a boon. Your research suggests there are ways that we can take and shift our focus when we go out there in the world uh, as soon as you leave this podcast and you're going to buy things and you can shift your focus away from um, considering those material goods into potential experiences. How can we do that? Uh, Well, um, I think one way to do it is to apply that pay now, consume later principle. So it turns out it's easier to appreciate the value of experiences when we're um, buying for our future selves. So it's easier to see the kind of abstract benefits of an experience relative to the sort of more concrete offerings of a material thing uh, when we're thinking about the future. So the future kind of makes us like astronauts. We like astronauts see the Earth from space and kind of see the, you know, the big picture, basically, the uh, oceans and the land masses, but not the trees. Uh, Just like that, when we think about our future selves, we think about the future, uh, it's easier for us to see those broad abstract features. And that makes it easier for us to appreciate the value of buying experiences. Awesome. So um, if people want to keep up with you, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, well, if they Google my name, uh, I'm luckily the first person that pops up usually. So um, that's a good place to start. I have a uh, website that's part of the University of British Columbia, where I'm a professor. Uh, and they can also check out um, Simon & Schuster's webpage for our book, Happy Money. And what, are you, and what are you working on right now? What is your current research? Uh, well, some of my current research is actually looking at how we can flip the philanthropy switch and turn the entrepreneurs of today into the Warren Buffets of tomorrow. Uh, so we've, in my previous research, we found that spending money on others is a good route to happiness. Now we want to find out how to get people to do that more. That is fantastic. And as a, before we part, what is, would you say is the number one misconception when it comes to spending money? Number one misconception. I think that the number one misconception about money is that having more of it will make us happier. And we would suggest that spending it differently may be the best route to greater happiness. So forget about earning more. Think about changing the way you spend what you've got. Wow. That was so good. The, um, you can learn about all that in this book, and I think it's the most I've ever highlighted any book that I've read. Uh, I was glad I was reading it on Kindle because I was just like, that's insane. That's amazing. That's fascinating. I have to look that up somewhere else. I can't believe that's true, and uh, I love it very much. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real treat. Oh, thank you for having me. And uh, so uh, now it's the time for our cookies. Uh, On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie made from a recipe sent in by a reader or listener of the You Are Not So Smart. And then I send a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book to the contributor, as well as post photos of their submission along with the recipe on the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. And of course... This time, I am recording this podcast right before the new book comes out. You are now less dumb, so I'm going to send a copy of that to Miriam, who gave me these apple toffee cookies as a recipe. And um, you can learn more about the new book by just going to youarenotsosmart.com. 
So let's try this thing out. Um, the ingredients list for this thing, uh, absolutely tremendous. You know, you've got dried um, diced apples. You've got uh, flour and cinnamon and oatmeal and granulated sugar, vanilla, brown sugar, toffee pieces. I mean, it's fantastic. So, and it makes this really nice sort of, it looks like an oatmeal cookie, but it's uh, flat. It's uh, browned on the edges. And the consistency of it is it's sort of, uh, it's hard and crumbly to my fingers. So I'm going to go away from the microphone here so I won't upset people who are disgusted by chewing sounds. And I'm going to taste this cookie. Mm -hmm. What? Mm -hmm. So yes, it's, it's crunchy, but it's also chewy. Crunchy on first bite, chewy as you continue. And dare I say it tastes like apple and toffee and cookie. Hold on, going back in for another bite. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. The closer you get to the center, the more uh, chewy it is. You know, everything's right. Everything's right in the world right now. That cookie, me, this room, this microphone, this little glass of tea I've got. That's, that's my capsule review for this cookie. It's going to, for a little while, make everything right. Thank you, Miriam. That is fantastic. If you would like to send in uh, your own cookie recipes, please do that. Just send it uh, to, uh, you can get all the information at youarenotsosmart.com. You can send it to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And I will get it, and I will check it out, and we will bake it, and it will be delicious. So, what are we talking about today when it comes to the study? Well, here's something interesting. One of the studies that Elizabeth Dunn writes about in her book is a study that she conducted. And this study involved taking subjects who were already visiting Old North Church. They didn't realize they were going to be subjects. And the Old North Church is a famous historical landmark in Boston, Massachusetts. And so the tourists, all mostly Americans, they checked off a travel checklist just before they went inside. One group of people, they were separated by two different questionnaires. One group of people checked off destinations that were mostly popular tourist destinations within the United States. They had cities like New York, Orlando, and Las Vegas on them. The other group of people, they checked off a list of uh, destinations that were not as common. Places outside the United States, places like Tokyo, Paris, and Sydney. So, and I'm reading this straight from her book now. She says, as you would expect, tourists checked off a lot more places when they were presented with the list of U.S. destinations, leading them to feel more well-traveled than people presented with the broader list of international destinations. So what you have now are two groups. One group of people primed to believe that they are well-traveled and another group primed to believe that they are not so well-traveled. And they both go inside the church and they exhibit two completely different behavior routines. One group... As they go inside, they see more things, they pay attention to more things, they linger longer, and they then report that they enjoyed their time inside more than the other group. And what we have are the people who were given the list of exotic international destinations were the ones who spent more time inside. They felt like they weren't as well-traveled, and they ended up savoring their experience 
more. The other group who felt like they had been well-traveled, they were, or they were well-traveled and they had been to many different destinations, spent less time inside and reported enjoying it less. So what Dunn says is that the research suggests that focusing on what we haven't done may trigger us to appreciate what we're doing now. And of course, if you focus on what you have done, it can diminish the joy of the thing that you're currently experiencing. In other words, there's a special kind of mindfulness that comes from whenever you self-identify with the experience that you're uh, going through. If the experience you're going through plays into a character that you see yourself as, it can strangely diminish the joy from what it is that you're doing because it becomes mundane. And you want to enjoy you want to enjoy your experiences as much as possible by injecting novelty into them. Whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, or whether it's uh, traveling the world, you want to feel as if you are adding to yourself by bringing in novelty, by bringing in unique experiences. And any experience that you have on a routine basis, do whatever you can to twist it, turn it, reframe it, or alter your routine so that there is a level of uniqueness and novelty in whatever you do day to day. That's the end of this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Go to youarenotsosmart.com to find links to everything that we talked about in this episode or pre-order the new book, You Are Now Less Dumb, which comes out July 30th or get the first book, You Are Not So Smart or get merchandise, including a confirmation bias t-shirt that's not available anywhere else in the known universe. And shortly you'll be able to go to youarenotsosmart.com and watch the new trailer for the new book made by Plus 3 Video Check those guys out, plus3video.com. They make amazing stuff. They're super talented, and they should make something super amazing for you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.